Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream 177 Q&A segment. We are ready to rock and roll. Yes, we are. All right, let's get right to it. Um, we, as always, start with a question from the Discord. They sent us two questions this week, but we've got a lot of questions otherwise, and we're going to keep it brief. But the second question relates to the solstice, and we're going to see you again before the solstice. So ask us that solstice question next week, and we'll mm, talk about it. Totally. It's coming, though. It, yes. <laughs> Just make a small talk. Trying to be helpful. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not what that was. I was not succeeding in being helpful, but I was trying. I, don't, I just don't know about that. Question from Discord. Brett and Alexandros Marinos discussed threats of a military AI arms race. What about corporate arms races, unregulated and subject to perverse incentives? What would an AI do with the stockholder priority algorithm, already in force, that Pfizer et al.'s benefit lies in a world population sick and eating lifelong prescriptions? Horrible thought. How does appeal produce preserve? How does the appeal produce preservative fit into this picture? Uh, yeah, let's, let's let's do the simple part. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, I th look. Um, as I discussed in the podcast I recorded yesterday, which I think you will all enjoy very much. There is a principle, Posiwid. The purpose of a system is what it does. And that's a cybernetic principle, but it is a very useful thing to apply to entities that change in civilization because they have the characteristics that cause them to evolve and meet a niche, to fill a niche. You think pharma is about creating pharmaceuticals to make sick people healthy or to make healthy people healthier or whatever. It ain't. Um, because the niche doesn't look like that. The niche involves selling products to consumers using doctors as a strange intermediary salesman and fooling doctors as part of that and uh, creating ill health as part of it and creating the impression of ill health where there isn't ill health as part of it, creating uh, self-addicting substances, creating mandates. All of these things have a role to play in making pharma's bottom line uh, healthy. And so you should expect to see all those games to the extent that they are not forbidden and uh, made unprofitable by regulation. So I would expect to see every game explored more effectively by AI-enabled um search algorithms that find games that we can't even name yet, right? The human mm -hmm. mind may be limited yep. in its ability to explore design space and find all of the cons that can be dressed as pharma, and AI may be less limited. It may be able to discover either defects in our own comprehension that will allow them to slide something by us, or it may be able to find games that are, you know, a couple steps more complex than we would be able to intuit. And we should expect all of these things to unfold. And basically, I would imagine that um, you'll see pharma get richer and people get sicker. That's the prediction. Yeah. Uh, I admit that I'm a bit uh, torched from what we've done already. So I'm going to just leave it yeah, there. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been uh, ferocious. Yeah. yeah. So uh, rather than add to that and continue on. Yeah, we'll let that. That's it. For me, it was the uh, the idea of the DNC unloading a BB gun on Donald Trump that really took it out of me. Did it? Yeah. Mm. Imagine how it felt for them. I imagine they shouted as if they were taking down a ferocious enemy, and then realized that they had barely annoyed the bear. Mm -hmm. Theodore John Kaczynski passed away today. Yes, he did. I did not know this. Uh, also known as the Unabomber. I would be keen to hear your thoughts on how his views on technology and your views on evolutionary biology coincide as his philosophy explored why did that happen as his philosophy explored the jarring consequences of the industrial revolution and uh, hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century explored similar topics what do you think of his philosophy i did not read the manifesto you did mm -hmm. um so it was he, he kind of did a, a quid pro quo uh Right, like he got it published. He, he got it published in the New York Times. Yeah, he actually succeeded in wielding terrorism to get his manuscript yeah. published. He actually 
um, injured a friend of mine, uh, somebody I did not know at the time, right. uh, David Glartner. Um, with one of his bombs. one of his bombs. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. Um, let's put it this way. A, the manifesto actually raised some interesting eyebrows in the academy, right? It was not a totally dismissible concept, this content of the manifesto. Obviously, the manner by which it came to prevalence is completely indefensible. Um, It was really uncareful. In other words, let's separate the Unabomber as a terrorist Mm -hmm. from the manifesto as a set of claims. Let's just look at the claims. It was... um, the thoughts were poorly developed. They were the thoughts of a person who had a glimpse of something and developed it in isolation and therefore did not benefit from having careful readers critique and question and push back and all of the things that might happen in a rich intellectual environment. He was a hermit. <clears throat> he was a hermit. He, he exposed his ideas to no one until he exposed them to everyone. Right. But um, so, but the ideas while... Um, so. I'm going to have a very hard time answering with any precision because I don't, we talked about it some of the time. In fact, we had some conversations among other graduate students in seminars about, about some of it, as I remember, but it's been so long and I just don't remember what, <clears throat> what his actual positions are, what, what the claims are in the document. But I remember the sense being like, there's, you know, he's, he's no dummy and he is insightful. And um, yes, if we can separate the, you know, the Unabomber, the terrorist, uh, from the man who chose to go off-grid in as many demands as possible and live entirely alone in order to escape what he saw as um, the creeping perniciousness of modernity. There's a lot of stuff that is true in what uh, he was seeing. And, uh, and yeah, that. Well, yes. I don't even want to say there was a lot of truth in it. I think there was a central realization, which ain't terribly far from the recognition in our book of hypernovelty. Mm-hmm. Right? He saw civilization making people sick. Yep. And he didn't have any of the important pieces of the toolkit surrounding uh, cultural evolution, altering our software, and us having a generalist platform. Right, that stuff wasn't there, and so he had an overly simplistic picture of what a human being is, and therefore what hypernovelty is. He, of course, didn't use that term, but yep. Um, so anyway, it's kind of a um, what do you do with it? It's like you know, a student submits a paper, and there's something in it that's right, and the context in which it's presented is a, a misinterpretation of the evidence and, and all of that. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. And when it comes from somebody who's blowing people up to make his point, you know, it's easy enough to just say, well, you know, it's not worth the cost of trying to disentangle it. Yeah. Um, let me say also that I did discover just now, uh, there is, there are two bizarre facts about this person that I believe are important to, um, to, juxtapose with what we know of him as the Unabomber. One is that he was apparently part of an experiment that uh, was either MKUltra or downstream of an MKUltra program. American government experiment. Well, yes, at Harvard, he was apparently enrolled in an experiment, uh, an experiment that I just barely read about it, but I some sort of psychological torture experiment. Oh, so, and that was while while he he has like a he had a PhD in math or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So, on the one hand, it could be nothing, but on the other hand, it very probably isn't nothing, right? Our government was experimenting yeah. with modifying people's psychology, uh, using things like hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. Um, for purposes that only it knows. And when when a person does something remarkable, right, like becoming a mass murderer, or a multiple murderer, or whatever it is mm-hmm. that we want to classify him as, yeah. and they have been in an experiment 
that plausibly alters psychology in a destructive way, I think we have to ask that question. I can't believe it took me to this point, to his death, to discover that that was a feature of his story. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I have no idea. And on a possibly related note, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, also apparently had severe body dysmorphia to the point of thinking that he wanted a sex change, which he ultimately decided against. What? Yeah, crazy. I know. So what is this? Is this a inherently psychologically unstable person? How old was he? He died in prison, presumably. He was in his 70s? That I don't know. Um, But anyway, you know, is this somebody whose psychology was destroyed by somebody's experiment? Is this somebody who was Do you know the timing of the body dysmorphia? Does it come after the the psych experiment? I it's a good question. This is all new to me. Those two features of his story are new to me. Um oh, God. But anyway, so there's there's a, just a question about how much uh, do you have some information, Zach? No, not information. I have to say it. Okay, go for it. Well, I would I would just have to point out that it's interesting if the US government was experimenting with something that caused potentially caused a person to have body dysmorphia that long ago and now everyone has body dysmorphia and wants sex changes. It's interesting. I don't I obviously don't know any more than yep. you do. And you drive yourself crazy trying to figure out how to connect all the dots, but I think, you know, I mean, first of all, it's not the only historical incident in which um psychological experiments by our government is tangentially implicated so what what do you mean in what and what are the kinds of things the murder of bobby kennedy senior is a bizarre story in which Mm -hmm. sirhan sirhan oh uh, yes the a the story doesn't make ballistic sense Right, it does, mm-hmm. It's not a match for the evidence. Evidence goes missing. There's something weird about the story that suggests that, you know, although Sirhan was there, had a gun and fired it, that um, that's not the story of what happened to Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Kennedy Sr. Sr., yeah. yep. Um, but there is also the strange fact of Sirhan's insistence that he didn't know what had happened anyway. So I'm not going to claim to know more about it than, than I do, but I will say, um, you know, talk about breaches of informed consent, right? You've got a government experimenting with mind control for its own reasons, potentially causing what at best would be collateral damage and at worst would be, you know, Manchurian candidate kind of events and who's to say what it means, but at some level it's... She- it's we something should, we need to get the bottom of. We should go back and watch The Manchurian Candidate again. It may seem quaint. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but okay. Yeah. 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 How is it that you guys deal with the truth of corruption in today's society without feeling hopeless or powerless? Do you think there can be human flourishing in a system run by money? Love you guys from Clearview, Ontario. Um, all right. How about I take a crack at this first? Yeah, I'll just sit here and feel hopeless. And no, don't, don't feel hopeless. First of all, um, there's a question about the role that money plays in our system. And there is a proper role in which it could be um, facilitating things that are very positive and has played that role. It also plays very different roles, the corruption of our system. So it's not the money itself. What you need is a system that uh, allocates profit on the basis of contribution, net contribution to human flourishing and well-being. That's not what we have. We have a system that does that sometimes. You can invent something and you can get paid for it, or you can deliver some kind of value and get paid for it. We're delivering some kind of value and getting paid for it. Um, But the question is, what is the net impact, right? The average thing that flows through your screen, is it contributing to human flourishing? Is it degrading human flourishing, right? The average story is way below what it might be. And the question is, how do you um, array the incentives so as to minimize the imposition on human liberty 
but cause the system to move in a direction that is actually healthy and productive rather than destructive and health degrading. So I would just, I'll just cap it off by saying, look, the first answer is we are in a very bad situation, but that very bad situation, you would have to go through a bad situation in order to take the system that we inherited and get to somewhere new that recovered the values that that system correctly identified, but built them into a structure that was robust and protected them. We are going through an adaptive valley. Nothing says we get out, but if we were going to fix the system, we would have to go through an adaptive valley. So the fact that things are bad is not inherently bad news. It may just be what you have to go through to get to the place. This, this I agree with. Um, with regard to the second question, do you think there can be human flourishing in a system run by money? I don't, you know, this, this is way outside of where I have spent much time thinking deeply. I just am not an economist by any stretch. And I think that's the relevant kind of expertise here. Um, but I don't know, I, I don't think I can imagine a system, uh, you know, above X number of people, let's keep agnostic for a moment, what X is, um, that doesn't, uh, isn't quote unquote run by money. Like, I don't, I don't think there's an alternative. So, you know, you, you alighted the like run by money question. You said, okay, it's, money isn't the problem. You have to fix, you know, fix the incentives. You have to fix, you know, where, where, what, you know, whether or not you're actually generating value and that means you get paid. Um, but the, you know, the paid part is still just sort of at base. And I just, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's a question that can even be approached really. You know, like, no, I, like the, the money is intrinsic. No, no. Money is intrinsic. Yes. That's what I just said. No, you said the money is intrinsic, which actually um, implies the current state of it. And what... I, I didn't mean to imply that. But the question implies it too. So the point is run by money, mm -hmm. right? The last thing you want is for money to influence how you deploy the incentives. That is a positive feedback that will inherently break down. Okay, so you're interpreting this not as, um, you know, money as the unit of exchange is the problem. You're interpreting this, putting much more emphasis on the run by money part of it. Yes, exactly. It is the degree of control over the system that arises from having money that is the problem. And you, we can make arguments about whether or not the founders truly intended to exclude that, but they certainly formally built a system in which it should play no role, mm -hmm. right? They distributed power in a way that was indifferent to the location of wealth. And we can say, well, but not all states have equal power because, you know, the Senate, et cetera. But, um, but nonetheless, the point is they at least broke the direct link between money and influence and that relationship has reasserted itself with a vengeance okay so my yeah, so i mean i think i think it's two very different interpretations of the question both questions are are interesting and relevant uh and i think i think the interpretation that you have made here is is answerable as, as you are doing and i would i would just put one more piece of uh toolkit on the table for this mm -hmm. um I've, I've spent a long time since i've talked about it for some reason but markets are terrific at solving certain problems, mm -hmm. right? How should I do X? Markets are brilliant at figuring that out. What should I do? They should never be asked, right? You wanna figure out what you want done, right? In a deliberative conscious process where you decide whether it would be good if that thing was accomplished. And then if you decide you want something accomplished, let a market figure out how and don't get in its way, right? Mm -hmm. Minimal interference, right? You wanna protect people from poisons and externalities, but you don't want to interfere with somebody's ability to innovate a solution to a problem that you do want solved, mm -hmm. right? As little as possible, but no less. But anyway, the point is, this is that question, right? Money runs the system. Well, money runs the system is money telling the system, telling the market what questions uh, to answer. That's not a feedback you want. You want humans telling the system what questions to answer, and then the market addressing that. And in the context, if you limit, if you divide these two things in that way, and then you say, okay, now I want you to solve problems, why would I solve them? Because it will allow you to choose 
how to spend your time in whatever way you want. Of course you want to. Where do you want to live? Where do, how do you want to spend your time? What do you want to think about? What do you want to do? Giving you more resources to answer those questions for yourself because you've brought something to humanity that makes us better off is a great thing. So there's nothing wrong with profit as long as profit goes to people who have actually done something that makes us better off and is in some sense proportional to it. And it's never going to be perfect, but it's a perfectly viable basic mode for a system to have. And the only thing that you need is you got to segregate off that other part where we decide what's okay to do and what's not okay to do, or what we want done and what we don't want done. And that has to be a completely non-economic question, right? That has to be a question about what's good for us, right? Mm -hmm. about which economics is an in, is a input. I mean, there's an analogy to be made with AI, no? Right? Like you, you don't want the money deciding what it is that needs to be done, and you don't want the AI deciding what it is that needs to be done. You want the humans in charge of figuring out what the questions are that need to be addressed and use these other things as tools. They are our tools. They are our creations. Actually, I believe that is the perfect analogy. Yeah. AI is a leverageable power, just like uh, money and you want people deliberately figuring out what it should be pointed to and what it must never be pointed to, mm -hmm. right? And that's exactly not where we are because we've repeated the mistake that we've got with money with the AI. Yep. yep. That's exactly right. Okay, next question. The Third Chimpanzee, uh, which is a book by Jared Diamond, which we own, but in the couple of minutes that I went looking for it, I can't find it. So this is a question about a book that I have read. I've actually taught with it, um, but I don't know where it is. So um, The Third Chimpanzee by Jared Diamond. He wrote this. This is one of his early books before Guns, Germs, and Steel by a lot. Uh, and it refers to us. We are the third chimpanzee. Not you and me, but people. Now you're, yeah, I don't know which one of us is three and which is four, right? One of us is the third chimpanzee, and the other is the fourth. All right. Yeah. No, it's so, it's, it's people. We got we yeah. got the two species of chimps, and then humans is anyway. That's that's the setup. I uh, only gotten through the first three words of this question. The third chimpanzee gives six possible reasons for women's concealed ovulation. He even gives a page number. Like I, we should come back to this. Like ask this question again next week, um, and I'll I'll come back to it for sure. Uh, if I, if I found the book. Go. Diamond doesn't choose one, but leaves the question open. Is oh, He doesn't choose one of any of the six, but leaves the question open. Is there new research and what reason do you favor? Um, so I, I wish I would like to be reminded of what the various things on the on the slate are. Um, yeah, for concealed I, I ovulation. So I don't. I, I mean, we could we could just riff on this, but uh, it might be useful to be reminded of what the. Yeah, the problem is. Um... I do have a favorite hypothesis, and it makes it hard to recover what the other ones might be. Um, well, why don't we? Why don't you go, and then? Uh, um, yeah, I'm. Gosh, I'm just. My brain is fried at the moment, so um, I'm just going to be responsive here. <laughs> I'm not going to generate anything. The concealment of ovulation, so that women do not know when they are fertile, and there, you will get tons of pushback on this because it is possible for women to develop an ability to tune into things that will tell them approximately when they're fertile. But especially uh, if in possession of a calendar. Yeah, a calendar, yeah. thermometers, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, but the inability for women to be precise about this and an ancestral context to be uh, precise enough for it to matter, I believe is likely to be a actual protective of women. If women were in possession of this information, then men who are often in a position to overpower women would be in a position to extract the information. And the information is extremely important in a genetic fitness context. So the you know, this is a complex way of saying that by having the information shielded, a different game theory surrounding sex and reproduction unfolds. And that game theory, I believe, is actually supportive of uh, pair bonding. That yeah, is, the, 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 the ignorance by both sexes actually provides some power to women um, to enforce is a 
term of art here, uh, relationship where it might otherwise yeah. not be enforceable. Enforced commitment. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, right, if a guy knew when a woman was fertile and he could either trick her into engaging in reproductive activity at that moment and then flee or, uh, you know, rape or whatever, then the point is then there are lots of strategies that are, um, that will emerge. The fact that neither men nor women know when women are fertile means that one obvious strategy, which then gets facilitated by a lot of cultural evolution, is commitment and bonding that involves things like, uh, you know, courting and uh, mm -hmm. engagement and these things so that the commitment of a male can be tested over a long period of time. Um, so anyway, this goes along with, you've got concealed ovulation, women don't know when they're fertile. Also, and I believe of symmetrical importance in the human context and equally unusual or uh, unparalleled elsewhere, is, well, no, this one is not quite as unparalleled, is sexual behavior outside of fertility, mm -hmm. right? So that humans engage in sex when not fertile, either after menopause or during times of the cycle when not fertile, right? That is an amazingly important contributor to the same story because mm -hmm. the point is this very powerful incentive is uh, utilized for something other than narrowly targeting yeah. reproduction. Well, I mean, it, it, it contributes to relationship in two ways, by decreasing the value of simply forcing sex or having sex only for reproduction. Yep. Uh, and it enhances uh, the capacity for bonding and pleasure uh, throughout, you know, th throughout a huge amount of time, where otherwise that would be limited to a very small amount of time, which can then, of course, increase um, the bonding in other areas of relationship as well. Yeah. So the short answer to this question is, at least according to you and me, as we understand it, these are uh, partnership enhancing adaptations that are either entirely or almost entirely unique to humans mm -hmm. and that the pair of them together is a very potent combination. Yep. This one looks like, okay. Do we have a sense, let's see, this is a two-part question. Here we go. Do we have a sense of what the intermediate Oh, okay. We gotta... Here's the question. I think the IDW types should publicly stream conversations with uh, GPT-4 so posterity can see its limits and biases to help us know where we stand. Ask the AI to play out both sides of complex issues like the alignment problem, gaming against itself. This might be humanity's first diplomatic interface with our AI overlords. I do think there is something... And, you know, I have mostly stayed away from uh, the interface, but there is something, if you can get good at wielding the interface, there is something very useful about having it debate itself. It can flesh out a problem by playing both sides of an argument. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the first person I saw do this was Mark Andreessen. Oh, yeah? Yeah, um, who did a very good job pretty early on. It may have even been... Uh, a, GPT 3.5 exercise. But anyway, I do think it's very useful because what you can get is a, let's explore this territory. I don't want to hear your argument about X. I want to hear the back and forth between two parties mm -hmm. who are equally interested in advancing their perspective. Mm -hmm. Now I can look at it and I can say, well, where are the weaknesses in this slate of arguments? You know, what's robust? What cast, you know, if I can spot a logical error in that, well, what are the cascading consequences if I knock out that argument, mm -hmm. right? So it is a great way of getting the landscape laid out um, through, you know, basically, uh, you know, it's basically like the logic of a court, right? I want to find mm. out whether this okay. person convicted, uh, committed a crime. Yep. How am I going to do that? Well, they're each going to have an advocate who's going to wield every tool that they can get away with under the rules of the court, and uh, we'll let people listen and hear what, hear what they've got. So anyway, it's that same adversarial logic for truth-seeking. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, here we have a follow-up from uh, a question that came in last week with uh, no spacing. It was a lot of long words that we didn't totally know. Um, it, it had a certain <clears throat> Germanic character. No, it was more like Latin. Wait, no, Latin isn't especially clumped together at the uh, number of syllables per... I mean, it was it's just Latin words. Oh. All right. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm not going to let the facts get in the road of a good story, though. Um, case report. So he's got a link here. Uh, I don't. I don't know how much more we. I don't know how much more we're going to do on this, but uh, case report: CRE gene (parentheses KPC) transmission via plasmids within the family Enterobacteriaceae mm. hospital environs. So um, here, I don't know. Plug this in and see if you want to show my screen here for a moment, Zach. Um, sure. Uh, this is the link in the question is from the journal, it looks like Frontiers in Microbiology, published in 2019. Uh, an original research article called Plasmid-Mediated Transmission of KPC-2 Carpa Penemase in Enterobacteriaceae in Critically Ill Patients. So we figured a little bit of this out last week, and I gotta say, I'm not, I don't totally remember where we're at. It's this Carpabenum resistant and in, in Enterobacteriaceae, um, causing healthcare-associated infections worldwide, um, and there's limited treatment options. But I don't remember what the... Oh, oh wait, they mentioned Germany, so there you go. There's oh, there it is. Uh -huh. Knew it. Of course. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about this at the moment. Well, I'm sorry. So the person was just pointing us to the... I, th I think just point... Yeah, case report. So this is the is case it, report, because we were... Is it possible? I know you don't want to, but yeah. uh, you want to... Uh, would you accept some cookies and then read the abstract? You have cookies? No, but the web page. You just offered your cookies. No, no, they're computer cookies. It's on the web page. I don't think you have an app. I don't know. It's just on my. It's on my screen. Oh, okay, but you totally just offered me cookies. <laughs> I feel like that would help. All right, if I had them, they'd be yours for sure. Um, I had like a couple of hard-boiled eggs for breakfast. That was a long time ago. I could use some time. cookies. I know. Well, okay. the web page is asking. Thank you. I mean, he owns cookies, right? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, I'm happy to read this, but I will try. Okay. All right. Um, here, make it a little bit bigger. Oops, that didn't help that much. Yeah, that's a little bit bigger. Okay. Uh, so again, this is an article called Plasmid-Mediated Transmission of KPC2 Carpapenemase in Enterobacteriaceae in Critically Ill Patients, published in the journal Frontiers in Microbiology in 2019. Can you do it in 4-4 time? A lot, of, you know, a, lot. a lot of cookies. A lot of cookies. God. I mean, have you ever made cookies? I'm the cookie I maker. I have made cookies. It's really? been a while. Oh, I have definitely made cookies. Not for me. It's been a long while. Have you ever known your dad to make cookies? <laughs> oh, it's longer while than he's been around. Uh, I've been around <laughs> at this point, apparently. Yeah, yep. he really has. Oh, okay. you've been you've been around, but you've been around. Your being around has been concentrated to the period, well, like after your birth until, like, for example, now. And it's convenient that it totally doesn't overlap with your presumed cookie making period. Yes, but the absence <laughs> of eyewitness is not. No, that doesn't work. Uh, yeah. He could make some cookies. I mean, he promised them and all this. Okay, I'm going to read this abstract. I don't know where we are. Uh, carpabenum, so carpabenum was a, uh, is an antibiotic, or antibiotic class, if I remember correctly, right? Carpapenum, carbapenum, wow, I'm just going to mispronounce half these things. Carbapenum resistant enterobacteriaceae, that's CRE, so that's, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria, of a, of a particular sort, particular antibiotics, particular bacteria, CREs are particularly antibiotic resistant particular bacteria cause healthcare-associated infections worldwide, and they are of severe concern due to limited treatment options. We report an outbreak of KPC2 producing CRE. So I don't know what KPC2 is. KPC2. Do you know what KPC2 is? Is it going to be resistance? It's going to be a resistance that is transmitted on a plasmid. Okay. Okay, maybe it is. Yeah. We report an outbreak of KPC2 producing CRE that was caused by horizontal transmission of a promiscuous ooh, plasmid. Are any plasmids not promiscuous? Um, is that just their nature? Okay. Well, I know I, we're not allowed to shame them over it. 
Okay, I'm going to start this sentence. This is going to take a while. <laughs> we report an outbreak of KPC2 producing CRE that was caused by horizontal transmission of a promiscuous plasmid across different genera of bacteria and hospitals in Germany. Across different genera of bacteria. That is the central concept well, here, I'm guessing. Well, but you know, what what does it mean? On what basis do they decide different genus? We're talking about It doesn't bacteria. matter. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll come back the, to why. They're not so sister. Important. Is that the, like, as they're long as far they're enough apart that we're not talking about two different strains of yep. the same okay. species. Fair enough. Yeah. 11 isolates, uh, eight Citrobacter frondii, two Klebsiella oxytosa, and one E. coli were obtained from seven critically ill patients during the six months of the outbreak in 2016. One patient developed a CRE infection, while the other six patients were CRE colonized. Okay. Three patients died in the course of the hospital stay. Six of the seven patients carried the same C. frondii clone, one K-axitosa clone was found in two patients, and one patient carried E. coli and C. frondii. This is all inside baseball. Molecular analysis confirmed the presence of a conjugative... I don't know how to read this. <laughs> I, I, I just don't know enough uh, bacteriology to know how to Say read Say something that's approximately right, just like even the letters. Molecular analysis confirmed the presence of a conjugative BLA KPC2 carrying 70 kilobytes. L, I think it is, NCN plasmid in C. frondii and E. coli, and an 80 kilobyte LNCN plasmid in K. oxytosa. All trans conjugants harbored either the 70 or 80 kilobyte plasmid with BLA-KBC2, embedded within transposon variant TN4401G, whole genome sequencing and downstream bioinformatics analyses of all plasmid sequences showed an almost perfect match when compared to a BLA-KPC2 carrying plasmid of a large outbreak in another oh, German awesome. hospital two years earlier. That is, okay, I've got it now. Yeah. So I, when I'm reading out loud, especially, I'm, I'm not necessarily yeah. internalizing yeah, it, so yeah. you're going to have to explain it once. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read that last sentence one more, see if I can get it. Whole genome sequencing and downstream bioinformatics analyses of all plasmid sequences showed an almost perfect match when compared to a BLA-KPC2 carrying plasmid of a large outbreak in another German hospital two years earlier. Differences in plasmid sizes and open reading frames point to the presence of inserted mobile genetic elements. There are few outbreak reports worldwide on the, trans on the transmission of BLA-KPC2 carrying plasmids across different bacterial genera. Our data suggest a regional and super-regional spread of BLA-KPC2-carrying LNCN plasmids harboring the TN4401G isoform in Germany. And they say science isn't fun. <laughs> now, this is, actually. This is, uh, this is a total vindication for me, actually. Okay. Um, uh, I don't... I don't... I, I don't yet know what we're looking at. Okay. So first of all, I believe that the answer we gave last week, which I would have to go back to, was dead on accurate. I believe we guessed what was going on here correctly. Okay. I'd like to know what you think is going on here before we pretend to talk about it. What is clearly going on from the point of view of the abstract of that paper mm -hmm. is that bacteria that are not closely related to each other are exchanging a piece of information that allows resistance to spread horizontally between these species in an outbreak. So you have an outbreak in a hospital in which something has developed a resistance, and that resistance is then handed off between species of bacteria. Why they would do this is the central mystery. Yeah. Why? You could imagine... They're exchanging information horizontally, like culture. Uh, let's put it this way. You could tell a very clean story if it was happening all within a bacterial strain. As soon as you get to them exchanging this information between bacterial strains, wow, do you have a different set of things in play? And the mm -hmm. question is, and they don't. We don't have. I mean, at least what I've got here. Oh, like they're not going to show us a phylogeny of the bacteria so that we can assess that it really is quite different. Um, I, think, I guess I just I don't. I never trust that the phylogeny of bacteria has been done well. Right? Yeah, but, but, but if they're calling I, them different if genera, they're, if they're recognizably different enough to have landed in different genera. Right then, I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't have a multi-morph clade, yeah. Right, and the punchline of this, the reason that I say it's a vindication, yeah, is that 
I believe what is likely to fall out of this, if properly analyzed, is a defense of lineage selection creating adaptations you would not otherwise see in bacteria. That the exchange of this information suggests something about the um, advance of a set of bacteria that are it's the, in a it's, clade. Yeah, the Enterobacteriaceae. I right. mispronounced that, but you know, it's it's not it it, it it's all fractal. Like lineage is fractal. Lineage is inherently fractal, which is one of the things about the concept that is so useful. Yep. The concept of lineage selection calls into question the evolutionary assumption that you can't get adaptations that jump the species barrier. Now, I know there are nitpickers <laughs> out there who are going to go after me because there's an obvious way to get past the species barrier, which is mutualism, which okay. doesn't have anything to do with your species. Um, but the question is, it's possible that this is the equivalent of a mixed foraging flock where each of these strains is getting something different out of participating and exchanging information. That is a possible interpretation. Another possible interpretation is that it is actually parasitism. Right. And what is happening here is that, let's say, a bacterium gets the magic formula for the resistance and then dies and it is spilled out into the environment and some other bacterium picks yeah. it up, but they say conjugation, which suggests that's not what's going on. But I don't think we know, I'm not gonna be able to tell for, I don't, I don't think we have enough precision to know if it always is going one direction. Right, we, we don't. We don't. What we have yeah. is an outbreak in which this piece of information is being shared. Right, it's it's spreading, but we right. don't know for sure if it started and what if it was it was if there was a point and there's you know a radiation only in one direction. So I guess I guess where I would fall out on this mm -hmm. is lineage selection creating adaptations above the species level is the really important thing that this might be, mm -hmm. but it isn't clearly that because there are two other possibilities. Second most likely possibility is mutualism among different species mm -hmm. um, in which they are participating and sharing information because they are partners in this, uh, this spread. Mm -hmm. And then the third possibility is that um, they are picking up information. They are adaptively picking up information that is being imprecisely controlled by one strain and then another species is picking it up because it's available either through, uh, through uh, the, it being spilled into the environment when the creature dies, or in some other some other fashion. So, I'm not, I don't think I'm understanding number three. I don't understand what. Let's say that's a, an let's say a bacterium has the magic formula for how to resist the antibiotic. Yeah. Okay. So it's doing well. Creates a bunch of copies. Many of them die. When they die, the information that they held for bacterial res for uh, antibiotic resistance is still there spilled into the environment in fragments. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that these creatures are adapted to scour the environment for potentially useful free-floating information. But as you just said, they say that they have evidence of conjugation. Right. So is, it's not, so that doesn't seem like it's... Well, the fact that they have evidence of conjugation doesn't rule out that third mechanism. They're not mutually exclusive. But the fact that there's conjugation is suggestive that that's not what's going on. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, I think this is really cool. And I've been waiting for at least a proper lineage level analysis of bacterial conjugation since uh, I, I actually tried to write a paper on this in my first year teaching at Evergreen. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't remember this. Yeah, it was hard to come up with information because the field was so... Uh, built around an individual level analysis of bacteria that mm -hmm. anyway it was it was a struggle and I gave up but well there's a couple <clears throat> um here how about this do we have a sense of what the intermediate molecules looked like on the way to forming the first DNA either way why can't we create it mm. we recreate it um I don't I'm not familiar with that I don't know if we've tried. I mean, I assume we've tried, but I don't, I don't know what we think about intermediate molecules. Well, I think we, I think there is oh. wide agreement, correct or incorrect, but wide agreement that a, an, an RNA world likely preceded the DNA world. 
So one step yeah. back. Yeah, that's that's go. true. Yep. And RNA, we've got plenty of, and we've yep. got lots of different versions of it. And if you want to look into that RNA world, the ribosome is the place to understand it. The ribosome is a throwback to the RNA world. It is like an mm. enzyme, but it is built out of three RNA uh, nucleotides, uh, four nu RNA nucleotides rather than 20 amino acids. And so it's much cruder and much slower and less efficient, but it works just like an enzyme. It's just bigger and clumsier. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is a hint to what the RNA world likely looked like. It looked like biology, but uh, the molecules are bigger and clumsier. And, you know, it was like uh, the difference between uh, little kid Lego and Lego techniques, mm -hmm. right? That difference. Cool. Uh in which animal species does inbreeding have deleterious effects? In which, if any, doesn't it? Is it dependent on their niches? Much love to you too and the family. Yes, it's dependent on niches. Should be. It, sh it should be. I, again, I'm not familiar with the empirical work. Uh, I feel like there's some, you know, some famous big examples in which we clearly see inbreeding um, causing problems, but it's, you know, it's frankly most obvious in humans and, and artificial selection of like of dom our domesticates, our farm animals and such. Well, I think it's actually inbreeding is overrated as a problem because we see it. When we see it, we see the problem. What we don't see is the huge number of instances in which inbreeding exists at a node of a phylogeny. When something moves across a barrier and founds a new population that becomes a different species over time, it is very often going to be the result of a very tiny population producing a sizable population. So there was inbreeding. And what people don't get is that if you take two populations that are separated and then you isolate or if you take members from a population and you isolate them and you cause inbreeding, you will get an immediate decrease in fitness. Um, I don't mean fitness as in reproductive success. I mean the well-being of the products of incest are compromised by the fact that deleterious recessives that would almost never meet each other meet each other with great regularity. But mm -hmm. what that does is it exposes those deleterious recessives to selection, which then purges them. And so the point is inbreeding is a problem that corrects itself if the species persists through it. So we've got all kinds of species that and went- And effectively, if, if the species survives, can act as a, like a purgative, a, a cleanser. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we've got things like sea otters, which were down to a population of like less than 100 individuals that have now bounced back to a population of tens of thousands. Um, so the point is, well, you know, based on what we think about inbreeding, shouldn't that bottleneck have caused them not to be able to bounce back? And the answer is no, because inbreeding is caused so repeatedly through evolutionary history that there's a whole story about it that we don't understand. Um, so the reason I say that your point is this somebody we know? Who it's Echo. Echo. Of mm -hmm. course it's Echo. Um, the reason that I say niches will definitely have an impact is that cert certain niches are going to cause this just by their very nature, mm -hmm. right? That the nature of dispersal, right, in some species is going to result in this never being an issue or almost never being an issue. And in other ones, you know, something that uh, finds itself, you know, dispersing over a boundary and being a tiny population at first, that is going to happen routinely. Mm -hmm. and what you ought to find is that the inbreeding depression, the cost of inbreeding is very low in population or in species in which this is regularly a source of a new, uh, a new population. Yes. I don't know what this question means. Uh, if you're not an AI expert, shouldn't you talk to A many AP ASAP? 
does that mean as many as possible? Yeah. I as soon that. as possible, <laughs> I think. Um, I have sent seven to eight questions to show flaws and model. Most talked around QAs, Q&As are bad for this. Um, um, yes and no. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. You know, if you think that the AI analysis ain't any good, then you absolutely free to source AI analysis somewhere else. On the other hand, I think there are things that we talk about with respect to AI and how we as human beings ought to think about it that um, you're not hearing anywhere else. And so. Well, I will say, like, I don't, I don't tend to because I don't, I just am not tracking um, what's going on, but I guess. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you, you have, you, you do, and you, you know, you have, <clears throat> You've talked to Alex on air, but you also talked to a lot of people not yep. on air. Um, but uh, it is also a classic mistake to say, talk to the experts. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially when uh, the experts have so clearly misunderstood a lot about what they are supposedly expert in. Uh, so, you know, it, yeah, that. I will also say, I'm not against it. I mean, for one thing, I invited Eliezer Yudkowsky to Dark Horse to talk about this um, and have heard nothing back. When I wrote my paper in 2016, I sent it to one of the leading people in the field. Um, he had nice things to say about it. Uh, and I'd be willing to talk to others. But, and you know, I have talked to a couple actually privately. I haven't talked to them publicly. But anyway, I'm open to it. Um, yeah, here is a. I just. I'm, let's yep. let's get through these. I'm I'm. I know. Collapse here. I'm dying for cookies. Um, dude, why would you do that? Sorry. You still don't have them. That is true. Right, you've been sitting here the entire time. I know Not for a fact cookies. that you have neither made nor sourced cookies. You know, we're gonna get an easy bake oven, and I'm gonna keep. <laughs> what said a guy who's clearly never been anywhere near an easy bake oven? No, I think I've seen one. Yeah. A light bulb, right? I don't even like. I, I think I was probably given one, but it was yeah, not my thing. It was not your yeah. thing. Yeah. Um. I like to bake plenty now, but not. Yep. No. Not pretending with a. Whatever. With a light bulb. Yeah. Something. Uh, it makes sense that AI is already. Okay. Question. Question. It makes sense that AI is already widely used by beings from other planets. No. It depends on where they are in their development, but um, will will they have developed? Yeah, or maybe, it's, maybe sure. it's the Fermi paradox. Maybe it, uh, maybe it doesn't go what, well. Maybe this is what it does to yeah. you. Yep, and then they're gone. Uh, your nemesis has a name. It is group positive freedom, the natural antithesis of individual liberty. Vax and ESG are both group positive freedoms. That's um, interesting. Group positive freedom. I get it. Uh, it's... it's, it's a clever presentation and correct, but the one thing I'm going to dissent from is that there is a trade-off between group-level freedom and individual-level freedom. And at this moment in history, for those of us who have retained the ability to think with any sort of clarity, individual freedom is 100% where it's at, right? And we can just see the tyranny flowing out of these other things, right? ESG being uh, the most ill-considered concept imaginable, right? A tremendously good example of how this goes wrong. Um, that said, what you don't want to do is so clearly see the centrality of individual freedom that when there is something to be discussed about the... Uh, yep failure, uh, the game theoretic failures that come under the heading of uh, collective action problems, that you are incapable of understanding that a solution is even desirable. Okay, Collective action problems are a hazard to the individual, right? For example, the tragedy of the commons results in the destruction of the commons. If the commons is what is feeding you, it will kill you as an individual, and you are not free when you are gone. So... <laughs> It is necessary that we not let the, um, the maniacal abuse of the idea of collective well-being get in the road of our ability to remember that there is something to the concept of collective well-being, even if the purpose of collective well-being is to preserve the access to individual liberty. 
Okay. Um, two UAP UFO comic questions, which I'll read in sync, and uh, and then one last question, and then we'll go, and um, I will show you where the cookbooks are, <laughs> where the internet is, where the butter is. You'll show me whose the cookbooks are. <laughs> Could they be trying to dilute the tribal politics and COVID division with UFOs because concern over AI, et cetera, isn't bridging the divide? Comment, separate, same topic. The UAP whistleblower PSYOP is about poisoning the well of public confidence and government whistleblowers a few weeks after FBI whistleblowers alleged election interference and other crimes. Mm, that is very clever. And uh, yeah, you know, I spoke to Michael Schellenberger about this FBI story and mm -hmm. it's something else that's pretty crazy mm. right you have whistleblowers alerting us to things that are of central importance mm -hmm. to the republic and being absolutely punished in the most obvious ways um by by the executive branch yes i mean it, it, maybe it works just like just like the category error that is introduced wherein you call something that's not a vaccine a vaccine right mm -hmm. oh whistleblowers oh we oh we love whistleblowers oh but wait a minute some of them lie. Oh, all whistleblowers suck. Oh, I don't trust any whistleblowers now. Yeah, I actually think this is a this is a pretty clever uh, a, a way to view the various pieces of the puzzle, right? That yeah, it's very much like the vaccine thing, right? Once you've got the category in your head, it can be invaded and polluted, which actually goes right back to what we were discussing during the podcast about you know the map is not the territory, the language is not the concepts Concept. that are actually being discussed, and so. Um, there's nothing you could show me under the label of whistleblower that invalidates the concept of whistleblower, right? Right. So right. that's where we are. Yep. As for the other question, mm -hmm. there does there is some game afoot about distractions. And the problem is there are so many on the table that I don't know which ones are being highlighted, which mm -hmm. ones are being de-emphasized. Certainly seems like the UAP thing is being advanced by something. What is that obscuring? Mm -hmm. Is that obscuring um, Biden influence peddling, right? Is it obscuring, you know, the Defender 23 exercise, which is actually, you know, a, a flex and an excuse to move military hardware uh, adjacent to a war zone? I don't know. But, you know, yes, what we actually need is a governmental structure that understands where our interests are and takes them seriously, mm -hmm. right? Somehow our interests are being subordinated to the interests of, at the very least, um, military uh, weapons manufacturers who may have exactly the opposite view of uh, wars and their escalation. So, yeah. Yeah, I do have the sense we're being distracted, but there are so many things on the map, it's very hard to even know what what is being hidden and therefore where to focus which yeah. is half the point yep uh, final question should we be concerned about consuming beef containing the spike protein consuming beef containing the spike protein i think this is responsive to the possibility of mrna vaccines in beef yeah in which a case, as opposed to COVID spike protein has gotten into beef some other way. Yeah. Yep. In which case, I will say, I will say as, as a repetition of something I've said many times, and I will probably have to say again, spike protein is a real problem. However, it's not where you want to focus if the question is about mRNA vaccination. mRNA vaccination is a problem for a different reason and if you took the spike protein out of it, it would still be dangerous, irrespective of what you swapped in. And uh, if what this is in reference to is uh, cattle being vaccinated with new mRNA platform vaccines, there's no reason to expect that spike protein is inherently in those. You've yep. got the mRNA platform problem, but you don't have the spike protein problem. Exactly. Right. Now, they could vaccinate them. I, I don't know. I mean, these people are crazy. I don't know what they're going to vaccinate for what and why, because it really probably has very little to do with the health of livestock and a lot to do with selling vaccines. So who knows? Maybe they'll vaccinate them for COVID and there'll be some spike. In which case, is it good for you? No. Is it dealt with in cooking? 
probably. Is it dealt with in cooking better if you cook hotter rather than eating stuff rare? Yes. Um, yeah. It's, I'm, we've talked about this before, but it's unfortunately an argument for well-done meat, which a lot of us don't prefer. Yeah, not necessarily well done. It's, it's an argument that uh, rare is a special problem because rare is cool enough that it can preserve something like this in its original form. And so, and spike protein doesn't have any particularly special properties in being particularly resistant to denaturing with heat, right? Like it, it should, it should unfold and become a non-problem with a certain amount of heat, just like any others, any other proteins, as far as we know. There's, let's put it this way: heat will certainly denature it. How much heat is something is an empirical question. I'd love somebody to answer, but let's put it this way: personally, am I worried if somebody vaccinates a cow? for COVID and the cow produces spike protein. Am I worried about ingesting the spike protein in the food? A little, but not that much. What I'm really worried about is their pseudouridine stabilized mRNAs, which will then transfect my cells, right? That's the danger. Yeah, because uh, pseudouridine... Pseudouridine what mRNAs? Transfect? Stabilized. Stabilized. Yeah. stabilized mRNAs, being mRNAs and not protein, aren't going to denature in heat. Like, I mean, you could you could blast them with enough heat to render them not recognizable, but... You could break um, them apart. But, but uh, I don't... Again, it's an empirical question that I don't even know if it's been asked, much less would I know where to find the answer. Like, how much heat do you need? to get rid of that platform from continuing to act like a factory and transfecting your own cells. Well, I think we can actually, we can take a pretty solid uh, educated guess. All right. Because denaturing is a matter of causing the hydrogen bonds that cause a protein to fold into a particular conformation to break apart. So very often you can right, denature. But that's over in spike protein land we're talking about. I know. Okay. So if we're talking about a protein, Denaturing it with heat can cause it to unfold and not function in the way it would function, and then cooling it can cause it to reform or not reform, depending upon the particular protein and the conditions. In the case of mRNA of any kind, its function is not in the folding, right? Its function is in the sequence, which then gets read by a ribosome so the point is you're not breaking hydrogen bonds in some meaningful way. It's the covalent bonds that make up the string of nucleotides. And, and covalent bonds are more robust. Yeah. They're so gonna... it's going to take more heat. Right. And that's so before... that's, just, that's just a relative answer, but it does seem like a pretty strong relative it's answer. It's going strong... to take, take more to disable the little mRNA factory that you might be taking on than it will to disable, to, to render the spike protein unrecognizable as a spike protein. Correct. And that's before you get to the issue of it being pseudouridine stabilized, at right. which point it becomes yeah, and I don't a know how to add that in, molecule. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. How uh, dare they? These people suck. They really do. The whole idea that they would be playing with this concept with respect to food is insane. And you said you have another planet for them? Uh, and I also even... promise that it's not ready yet, but we can send them anyway. Here's the thing. Um, with respect to the people <laughs> who would contemplate putting pseudouridine-stabilized mRNA so-called vaccines into things that people are then going to eat, mm. what I have for them is the location that may at some point in the future have a planet, and I would like to send them there now, mm. and then... Should a planet arise, they're welcome to make of it what they will. Here, I can sweeten the deal for them. Nice. Yeah. You can have the cookies that Brett is going to bake as soon as this broadcast is over. It can tide you, you can over. Take them, you can take them with you. Until the planet arrives, you'll have all the cookies we've made during this broadcast. There's no we. All the cookies I've made during, <laughs> during this broadcast. <laughs> yep, there's no we. Right, no, this is, there's no division of labor here. All of these thought cookies were thought made by thought me during this broadcast while we were doing other things. Mm -hmm. Yep, mm -hmm. that's true. Yes, indeed. Well, good. Okay. I'm so glad we're getting rid of them. Not the cookies. No. No, were, the people. I and thought they I were pretty good. <laughs> All right, well. Yes. That was... 
Ah, oh, that was interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> the whole thing. Except cookies right there. It says it on it my screen. Sure does. We use cookies. It's like they're on your team. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. Um all right. Well, we will be back next week, and I believe so I forgot to say a number of things at the top at the top or the bottom of last hour, but um we are gonna be switching our live streams um starting sometime in July to Wednesdays. Um but we will also, we'll be back here same time next week with a Q&A, but then the following week we're going to come early. We're going to come on Wednesday. Uh, and I think right around the solstice, actually. It's like, I don't know this year if the solstice is the 20th or 21st, but if it's the 21st, we'll have a live stream then. Um, but that's that's two out. We will do a live stream on the 17th, a week from now. And uh, we'll see, you will see us then if you choose to come. And we won't know if you don't because we can't see you. So that's the way of the... You didn't have to tell them that. They do. Our audience is very... They may have infer Oh, no, I know, but... Any of them who thought we could see them might have been better behaved. Mm, okay. Well, our moderator will still be here, so um, just watch yourselves. Yes. Um, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. <laughs>